Before uh, praying and getting into the text this morning, I thought it would just be a good time to let you know about the next couple weeks. In about uh, two additional Sundays, we're going to take a break from Exodus for a period of time, uh, most likely until the new year, uh, and then we will pick up after that, and we probably will spend some time uh, sort of playing hopscotch in one sense, skipping through uh, large passages, portions of the text, really to get to the book of Numbers, which I always think is uh, one of the most wonderful books in the Old Testament, so poorly named that nobody ever wants to read it. Uh, but it is a fantastic book. And so, uh, just so you know, that's, that's where we will be. So, during the Advent season, we'll be uh, both in the Old and New Testament, but really looking at text uh, for uh, that season of our church calendar, both in morning and evening. With that, before we go into this passage this morning, let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, this word has the power to pierce us, strike us. It is a word that can cause us great distress. And Lord, if that the word accomplishes that for us this morning, I just pray that we all remember the work that you have done so we need not give in to that distress. We, that the sins that we commit are not the final testimony of our story, but the final testimony of our story is the work that you have done to save a bride like us. A bride that has been unfaithful towards you. And yet you still desired to be our bridegroom. Not in anything found in us, but in everything found in you. And so let that understanding uh, just resonate with us throughout the sermon, and especially as we leave here this Lord's Day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We worship a God who asks nothing short of us than for us to go into the world as his followers and strive to expand his kingdom. And yet God accomplishes this goal in a most peculiar way because he first calls us in one sense to look inward at the sins we struggle with, at the logs in our eyes. And this self-examination, while it can make us uncomfortable, it's a pattern God uses us as he draws us from darkness into light, as he prepares us to be instruments in his kingdom. Today we look at two commandments, one against adultery and the other stealing, and, and both are basically broken when we have an inordinate desire for something that is not ours. And we steal something away in that ordinate desire, and, we, and it is rooted in selfishness. It is grounded in darkness. 
And we need to avoid the minimizing of these sins or the self-justifying that we do with these sins, but rather have the courage to deal with the logs in our eyes so that we can better go out into the world for the glory of God. Now, most of our sermon this Lord's Day will be grounded in the first of these two commandments, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And I was humbled this week as I, I decided to read a book I've never read. I've always wanted to read it. It's uh, from Thomas Watson on the Ten Commandments. Unbeknownst to me, Rob actually quoted a different work from Thomas Watson during men's study this week. But I was amazed to find out that Thomas Watson, he was a Puritan preacher in London. He lived roughly from 1630-ish to 1689, or basically 50 years before uh, the Reformed congregation came to be here at Old Goshenhoppen, that he looked at this Seventh Commandment in the 1600s in London, and it was his belief that this commandment by, might be the one that outwardly his city his congregation struggled with more than any other. And I was absolutely floored by that fact because I thought about our own day. Now, we live in a world that is covered in images. We, when we watch TV, we're really just watching images rapid fire at us and maybe at 60 frames a second or 30 frames a second. Just images after images after images after images fire at us. We live in a world where in a bad minute with a device, we can look at things that grandparents, great-grandparents and alike would have never dreamed of ever setting eyes on. And if in the 1600s, this preacher thought this was the worst of the besetting sins of the second table of the law in his congregation, what would he say of our society? It was a humbling fact. You know, I, I think of our society, how the civil society, which is supposedly civil, has responded to this sin. I, I mean, there used to be a day and age, I'm not too young to remember, the, the fact that there was a day and age to really find things that would cause you to break this sin. You, you know, you had, to, you had to drive to a seedy place. You had to venture to a place that was kind of uncomfortable. We don't have that anymore. Well, for instance, during COVID, there was this great response, and there's still this great response of, uh, by like social media outlets like YouTube you know, to, to suppress theories on the Wuhan leak theory or, or suppress, suppress these sorts of things uh, you know, about COVID in order for the public health benefit because we're worried what people might do if they listen to a, like a Robert F. Kennedy uh, or, or something like this. We might we worry about what their response might be. This is a public health crisis. When it comes to this sin, the poison of this sin, our leaders 
Not that I'm confident they could fix it even if they tried because they're not very competent in fixing things these days. Our leaders have no desire to see this as a public health crisis. And yet the sexuality of our culture and our society and the sexual perversions and, and the ideas of uh, what intimacy is to look like is something that our society does not have a good footing on. And, and why I point that out is that this is really an area where your cell phone provider, your device maker, your internet browser, your streaming platform that you watch movies and TV from, is really not interested in helping you with this disease. It really has no desire to help you with this disease. And so we as Christians need to soberly look at our society and say, we need an action plan. We need a better way to walk. We need to say no to things. We need to not necessarily always need to, to watch the new show. To watch the new thing. Because we kind of like become the boiled frog inundated with these images. With these things that we see and, and, and our ancestors would have called them gross pornography. And now it's just like, oh, that's just, that's just how things are. We need to have courage as Christians to really look at these things. And by the way, if... If the topic of this sermon, if, if, the pa if the pastoral pulpit speaking about sexuality makes you uncomfortable, realize that's, that's not from a, like a biblical reality. The Bible speaks quite a bit about sexuality. The Bible speaks quite a bit about what good marriage looks like. The Bible, I mean, we think about both how the Bible begins and in chapter 2, there's this definition of marriage between one man and one woman in Genesis 2. And how it ends is the wedding supper of the Lamb, the bridegroom, being married to us. <clears throat> we think of uh, one of the favored passages in all the scriptures, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. That's engagement, that's wedding language. Uh, we think of so many moments in scripture, God uses the illustration of marriage and sexuality to convey many of his truths in Scripture. <coughs> but also, he uses this image in ways to convey his disgust with society. I think about Genesis 19 in Sodom. Judges 19 with the concubine. Ezekiel chapter 16, which talks about Judah and Israel as prostitutes. The Bible uses this imagery. God uses this imagery to talk both about His covenant love and our unfaithfulness with great regularity. And so we want to be a people that soberly look at this topic. This topic is actually a topic that is 
the Scriptures actually tell us that it's different than every other sin. And it's really different because it's tied into His covenant love. But listen, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18-20. through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Just to repeat that. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, how are you doing when it comes to fleeing from sexual immorality? We are a most peculiar people. We can commend Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, basically what leads the Potiphar wife scene, what leads in one sense to his being imprisoned, how he stood up, but yet we can adopt a general malaise about having a battle plan in our own life to flee from sexual immorality. But again, the Bible is not squeamish to talk about sexual joy. Actually, the Bible wants us to have a, a very deep and robust language for this because we need to speak into a world that has no clue what they're talking about when it comes to sex and sexuality and the marriage covenant. And we all come to this commandment with varying degrees of violating it. Even if we've never been married. Because it's tied into sexual immorality. And so maybe this is where I'm going to even though this isn't where I put it in my notes, I'm going to say the following. As we begin to approach this text and at areas of this text, we have violated this sin. Let us remember, we worship the God who in John 8 sees a woman caught in adultery and he treats her with respect. He treats her with compassion. He offers her mercy and forgiveness. And yet, and still while doing that, he says, go out and sin no more. And so understand that, again, we are big picture people, but we do need to deal with the logs in our own eyes on this matter. And we all have logs in our eyes on this matter. And so that's what we're going to do in this morning. But this commandment is unique to God because in one sense it uniquely tests our faithfulness unlike any other. This bond is one that at its best strives, has us striving to pursue a faithfulness that will last a lifetime. And even while there's exemptions given towards and allowing for a severance of this lifetime bond, the reality is even when our Lord speaks of this, for instance, in Matthew 19, He even says these exemptions given are due to the hardness of our heart. And that's a hard word to consider. 
But it's, it's tied into the gospel itself because the gospel itself is an admission that, of the fact that God could have and should have, based on our works, divorced us, and yet he didn't. He didn't allow his heart to be hardened towards us, but he knew that this was a tough task for us, and so he has allowed for his people at times to separate. But marriage at its best is a lifetime bond. And so if you sit here as one remarried, understand that your past, like all our past, have sins. And what is again the goal going forward? To go and sin no more. To guard over our hearts, not fall into temptation again out of love for a forgiving God. As for the definition of marriage, let us be clear from the Right now, God created marriage in his, in his so doing, He gets to define it. He does it in Genesis 1, or Genesis 2. We see it as a one man, one woman marital union, union. And yet, in this same book, in the same book of Genesis, the most well known men of this book, like Abraham, like Jacob, even if we go into the, further into the Old Testament, David, Solomon. They failed to honor marriage's original design within their lifetime. Actually, the biblical story is one where the saints of God regularly fail, unfortunately, in keeping the seventh commandment. And yet, God still wants us to have an unwavering fidelity to how He defines marriage and how we hold marriage. Hebrews 13.4 tells us, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Not among people of old gosh and hopping. Not among, you know, just people who are, are Christians. Among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The faith is one that strives for marriage to be held in honor by all. Not one rule for them, and another rule for us. So how do you define marriage this day? Do you defining it? Do you define it by honoring it the way it was given to you by God? Or have you let another definition creep into your understanding? If you have let another definition creep into your understanding, and I understand I have loved ones that have embraced a new definition, have, have gone to the county courthouse in order for uh, a civil union to be performed under this new definition. I have loved ones I know who have done this. But my call as a Christian, as a believer in the Word of God above all else, is to honor His Word above them and honor them by so honoring His Word. So how do we define marriage? God wants us to contend for marriage and sanctity in our culture. Oh, there you go, Pastor. You're getting political again. Am I? Am I? John the Baptist is called in Scripture the best of those born of women in mortal flesh. Outside the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist is the most wonderful spirit-born believer in the entirety of the Scriptures. 
Of course, one day when we see him, we're made like him. The scriptures make clear our sanctification, who we are in God, will be even greater than John the Baptist was. But how did John the Baptist die? He was beheaded. He was beheaded for calling out sexual perversion in his leaders, in his political leaders, saying that is unholy, that is ungodly, that is not right. And because he honored God's definition of marriage, he was put to death. Because marriage is to be honored above by all. By all. Actually, the King James, and you can see it's an instance in, uh, I think it's the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. We, we use the word villain. The root of that word villain is actually an adulterer. You can see it at times in where you know, modern translations might call it an adultery. You can see the word villain. The King James. And so we need to battle the passions which pervert our witness to a godly marriage. And as you battle these passions, let me first say a few things directly to the teenagers here. Let me share the best piece of advice I ever got on this issue. I received this advice before I was a believer in Jesus. My brother-in-law had just gotten married to my sister. He was pulling off the five freeway. He had picked me up from high school. He was taking me home. I can still remember exactly where I was on the road. And he said to me, Kevin, understand that regardless of what people around you are starting to do, he said, Kevin, understand that every one of those young ladies will likely have a future husband someday. And if you do something you should not do, they are going to have to explain to their future husbands who you are. And by the way, if you do that sort of thing, you're going to have to explain to your own future wife who they were. And he just said simply, Kevin, don't put yourself in that situation. Don't do it. Don't allow yourself to have to explain why you didn't wait. And I'm here to say that as a teenager, I held on to that, and that stuck with me. It stuck with me through all the remaining high school years and all my years in college until I met my wife in my final year in college. And so teens, save marital intimacy for the one you will marry. As for the married, let me say a few things. First, the Bible's vision of marriage isn't that marriage will solve the battle of sexual sin. Actually, in the early years of my own marriage, I found myself uniquely ill-equipped to honor the seventh commandment because I convinced myself in being married that all my battles with the seventh commandment were essentially over. And that was far from the truth. And so I'm going to give you some pieces of practical advice, and I, this is basically from my background, and especially in Las Vegas, doing quite a bit of marital counseling. Let me say this to the married. Every marriage 
has one individual who might have a stronger desire for marital intimacy and one individual who has less of a desire for marital intimacy. You want it broken down on gender? It's roughly 80% of men with the stronger desire, 20% of women in the marriages. That's a reality. Now the warning. This is a warning in Scripture. I cannot believe how many couples I've come to counsel and in 1 Corinthians 7, more specifically verses 3 to 5, there are many Christians in lifetime marriages that are entirely unaware of these verses of Scripture. But they are some of the most important verses about protecting marital intimacy. I read from the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, why I mention these verses is the fact that God makes clear in His Word that when we don't honor the desires of our spouse in marriage, we can subject our spouse to the temptations from Satan. Now, of course, let me be clear, every temptation in life, God provides us by a way of escape. And so what I'm not saying this in this is if we live in a marriage that falls into sex, sexual sin, that we can blame a less intimate spouse for causing sexual sin to occur. But what I am saying is this. In a loving marriage, we are not to want the one we are married to to fall into temptation and sin. Here is a practical piece of advice. If and when we might say no, give a reasonable time in the future when you will say yes in the midst of that no. That would actually be honoring the heart of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. Honor that time. Honor that kind of intimacy. This is, I have seen the devastation in marital counseling of people who tested God's Word in this regard. You want to actually develop an ability to talk about intimacy with your spouse. Not in a finger-pointing kind of way. I did that early in my marriage. It's, that's not what we're, the aim is here. But in a way that makes sure that the marital relationship is one of regular enjoyment that you both delight in. We do not want to test the validity of God's Word with our most significant relationship with another in this mortal life. The last thing I want to get into with the seventh commandment is into the topic of when the lifelong promises are broken by either the physical act of adultery um, or by divorce. 
I want to briefly touch on divorce and remarriage as it relates to adultery. When the marriage bond is broken unlawfully through adultery or an unbiblical divorce, it is a grave sin. Some have divorced without proper cause and remarried. If this is your story, know that God does not view your remarriage as a perpetual act of sin. He speaks of it in the New Testament as a once sin, and he moves on and he forgives those who come to him and repent. So if through hardness of heart, it may have led to moving in a way that separated this union, again, God offers forgiveness for that. Go and sin no more. Sins have been committed. The law has been violated. But God at this point would be more pleased with your faithfulness today even if faithfulness in yesterday's was found wanting. Now, our second and more briefly looked at commandment today. Do not steal. I also read this week a book from Michael Horton. Um, and uh, he pointed out a statistic that 86% of Christians believe they don't struggle with the temptation to break this commandment. Which means that 86% of Christians have no idea the variety of ways that we can be guilty of stealing. We, they, they're obviously thinking of big ways which we can break this commandment of stealing money or possessions, coming up with frauds or scams or embezzlement, identity theft, etc. But we're missing as a group, as a collective, the variety of more subtle ways we violate this commandment. But even before we look at those ways, let me point out, it's incredible that we even have this commandment. This is the one commandment, it's almost amazing that we have it. Do not steal. If God, if God wanted the Marxist utopia, if God wanted what the WF proudly puts on its website as its 2030 goal, that you will know, own nothing and you love it. You'll love it. He could have. He's the God who created all things. He's the God who gives us every blessing. He's the God with ownership over all things. But he's also the God who is the God of the talents. He's the God who distributes talents. He's the God who has given us talents and said, these are yours to use. And talents can be financial. Talents can be you know, personal giftings, these sorts of things. He says, go and use these. Be profitable with these talents. Use it in my kingdom. Use it to, to expand my name. Use it to, to, to glorify my name, to honor me. Use these talents. <coughs> so the fact that we have a do not steal means that God gives us possessions, he blesses us with possessions, and yet in giving us those possessions, he wants to make sure that we're not possessed by them. And yet, we struggle with this sin. To appreciate our struggle with this sin, all we need to do is look at our first parents who were literally given the world. They were literally given the world and asked to stay away from the fruit of one solitary tree. They could have literally walked to Timbuktu. 
And yet, they wanted to steal from that one tree. Not because so much the fruit, but it says in the Scriptures, Adam was not deceived. What he really wanted to steal was the glory that God alone has. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to steal from God. And in so doing, he caused sin to fall upon the world. In so doing, he has caused caused spiritual death to fall upon the world. This is a powerful sin. Judas's inordinate struggle with this sin would lead to the betrayal that sentenced Christ to death. We need to be careful with this. And so, how do you steal? How do we steal? Have you ever been lazy on time you were paid on the clock? Not to work? I remember I just went to Walmart recently and like I couldn't believe there was like five employees actively playing things on their cell phones, swiping, scrolling, not working. They're stealing. They're stealing. They're stealing from their employer's time. They're stealing from them. They're stealing money in not working. Pastors actually are guilty of this quite a bit. We worship a God who tells us to, to rest. We tell us sometimes pastors will steal time. I, I've, we have pastors who will steal sermons. I've heard sermons from pastors that, that take from people of other pulpits and read from what they worked on. That's a form of stealing. If I were to, for instance, come up here for the next year and work out the backlog of my sermons that I preached when I was at Next Step or Spring Meadows or at, next, uh, or at the Las Vegas Rescue Mission, that would be stealing the time that has been appointed for me to study the Word in order to help feed the flock. When we start late, when we finish early, when we take that coffee break, the tea break, when we don't accomplish the things that we need to accomplish, that's a form of stealing. In a world with AI, we're going to have realities of plagiarizing and, and the ability for computers to do work for us in an instant. What about loans, especially within the church? If you charge interest, Exodus 22, verses, chapter 22 and Ezekiel 18 make clear God doesn't want the covenant community to burden one another with loans. It's a form of stealing. Have you overcharged someone? Have you taken credit for something that was not yours to take credit for? Have you manipulated everything, anything from a board game to a situation to people? These are forms of stealing from one another. Have you damaged someone else's property or reputation? Shakespeare once wrote, He who steals my purse steals trash, but he that filches from me, my good name makes me poor indeed. It is easy to steal someone's reputation. It's far harder to repair it once we have. It's a terrible sin that we are prone to fall into. 
Have you ever accumulated for yourself wealth or items in excess in which you refuse to share? Or debts you refuse to pay back? Or are you hoarding things you don't need, storing up things for yourself in great excess that would be better served going elsewhere? This can be a doorway of stealing. And, and it's not just about stealing from individuals. When we steal things that God has blessed others with, what we're doing is we're actually stealing from God Himself. Because it's God who blesses, blesses. It's God who pours out blessings. And so when we take from one entity, we're not just taking from that entity, but we're taking from them the blessing which God gave them. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful with the God with talents who asks us to go again into His kingdom and to go out and to labor and labor for nothing short of the entire world. And so do you give to God? Do you invest in His kingdom with your talents? Both with skills, but also financially? How will the one who will judge all Judge how we used our talents. How we look over the measure of our life. Are we reinvesting in His kingdom? If not, we are stealing. God has granted us temporary blessings which He makes clear did not come from us. Egyptian pharaohs tried to pack their tombs, stuffed to the brim with things they wanted to take with them. They could not take with them. And so as we begin to look at the Eighth Commandment in this kind of way, set against a God who says, I want to love, set against a God who asks us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength, we begin to realize that we, like our first parents, have stolen much from God and much from others. And in doing so, we have betrayed the marriage-like love God had for us. And how do we fix this problem we now find ourselves in? Well, how we fix this problem is once again we are, we are to go to a tree. The problem was created in us going to a tree we should not go to. Now we go to a tree which we're called to go under. And we're called to find rest in its shade. And its shade is the cross of Christ itself. It's there we can lay down our heavy burden. It is there in which we can find relief from the sins that we have committed when it comes to stealing, when it comes to taking something that is not ours to have, when it comes to not being faithful. It's there where we can see the marital-like love that God had for us, how He refused to harden His heart towards us and towards our own infidelity. And our own uh, poor desire to be faithful to Him, it's there where we can find forgiveness. It's there we can find mercy. It's there we can find the outstretched arms that call us into Him. And it's there that we can find a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's there in which the glory of our Lord rests, where we no longer stand condemned but rather, when we visit our Lord at that tree, it's then we begin to once again desire 
to desire to go out and sin no more. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. <coughs> Father God, this was a hard word. It's a difficult one to consider. It's a standard by which we have not been perfectly faithful in this life. And so help us, help this word to drive us to the cross, to drive us to the mercy seat, to allow us to really, truly understand and trust in the full pardon that Jesus Christ gives to us. Allow us to hear your word this morning, the best of the word this morning, which is a God who comes to us with compassion. A God who, yes, sees every sin we've ever committed. And yet, you do not look upon us to shame us. Rather, you declare to us, go and sin no more. Help us, Lord, with that mighty task of sinning no more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord.